0: Hey, what a great way to start. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, man, while we were singing that song, I was backstage and um, I was just watching Michael on the drums over here. And I don't know if you noticed at one point he had a shaker in his left, pounding the drums with his right. His right foot was hitting the bass and his left was running the cymbals. And I couldn't keep beats with my hands, right? So I don't know if that's where you live, but that's where I find myself most days. And I'm so thankful that we have talented musicians who lead us in worship here at Crossroads Church. And uh, as we speak about that, I just want to welcome all of you here at our Thornton location as well as online at Crossroads Live, uh, YouTube, Facebook, our podcast app, wherever you may be today. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning, uh, and I get the privilege of stepping into God's Word today. And today we are in week four of a series that we're calling "Do Justice," where we're looking at the social issues and particularly the injustices that are happening in our world and around our world. And really, the whole basis of the series has been to answer really this question uh, that we've come to week in and week out, and it's this: is in a world that's crying out for justice? How do we, as the church, speak to the issues of social injustice that really revolve around four issues, that being race, poverty, sex, and life? So how do we, as the church, speak to those issues of social injustice that are happening in our backyards, in our communities, in our cities, and around the world? How do we do that? How do we go about doing that? And as we've discovered over the first couple of weeks is that as we do this, we actually have a blueprint, that that's good news for us, we have this blueprint, that we can look back on history, particularly to the early church, and see that it was these four issues of race, uh, poverty, sex, and life that they dealt with that actually separated them from the rest of the world. It's, it's what spurred the gospel movement on. That as we look back at history towards the early church, what we see is that the early church was, was sold out for, for racial justice. They were just sold out for racial justice. They were dis- deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized. They were committed to sex being designed by God, that they were for life, speaking up for the powerless and the vulnerable in society. And not only were they for these things, but ultimately these things are what spurred the gospel of Jesus from a little Middle Eastern country into the entire world. And so today, if you're new with us, (laughs) quite a weekend for you to choose because the topic that we're talking about today is one of the most hottest cultural topics of the moment and just so happens to be the most divisive. Today we're talking about sex and gender. Now when it comes to the current cultural conversation around this issue, there are a lot of questions. Questions like this, isn't it? What does it mean to actually be male and female? And is that really the only options that we have? Is it actually possible for someone to be born in the wrong body? Is it okay for a man to act feminine and for a woman to act masculine? If your child comes to you and and says that they're gay or they want to transition, what do you do? What do you say to them? If you are pregnant, is it still okay in our society to have a gender reveal party? Is it okay to have same-sex attraction? Is it okay for a trans woman to compete in sport against women? We just got real fast, didn't we? Now, before we dive too deeply into the issues and what we're going to address today, I wanted to just say a few things, and first is, is that many of you might be wondering why it is that we're talking about sex during a series on justice. Now, the reason that we chose to do this topic during this series is because, culturally speaking, this is a justice issue, that we are in the midst of a sexual revolution where culture says the pursuit of free love is what is just. And anything that puts boundaries or tries to put boundaries around sex or gender or what happens or cannot happen in the bedroom is unjust. From culture's perspective, this is a justice issue. Second, as I've been working on this message over the last couple of weeks, I've come to realize a huge problem that obviously, just based on the questions that I mentioned above, there is no way that we can deal with all the issues of, of human sexuality in 30 minutes. And so I just want to apologize for the next two hours, all right, um, as we go down this. Now, seriously speaking, uh, a one sermon on this topic does not do this issue justice. And as such, in a couple of weeks at the end of August, where the preaching team is going on our annual preaching retreat where we pray and think through what the next year's messages are going to be like, and one of the questions that we're going to wrestle with is should we, in light of the, the sexual revelation, uh, revolution and what's going on in our culture, speak more deeply to these issues in a complete and whole sermon series? So in light of the limited time that I have today, I'm gonna limit my teaching to really building a theology of sexual identity. It won't be everything, but it'll be a good start for us as a church. And the question that we're gonna seek to answer today throughout this day is this, is what defines our sexual identity? What defines our sexual identity? In other words, if someone experiences tension between who they are sexually and the internal sense of self that they have, which one wins? Who are they really? Third, I wanna give a shout out to Bill Henson, Bill Henson is the founder and leader of an organization called Posture Shift. And Posture Shift, this spring, about half of our staff went to the conference and through the workshop we learned of what does it look like to address the sexual revolution, what does it look like to address sexual identity in the context of the culture in which we're now living as a church. And his writings and his thoughts have impacted me deeply and profoundly. It's influenced me greatly in this, and so for any one of you who uh, is interested in going deeper into this subject, I would gladly point you to posture shifts. Finally, I want to say to those among us who are part of the LGBTQ community, I want you to earnestly know today that God cares for you, that I care for you, and that we consider you a part of this church, the family of this church. I'm thankful That you have entrusted us to walk alongside you as you pursue a relationship with Jesus. That many in the LGBTQ community have experienced deep hurt and deep pain because of the church. And I'm sorry for that. We haven't always lived out the values the way that we proclaim. And so, today I want you to know that I'm going to teach as faithfully as I know how. I'm not going to dodge any of the issues, and at the same time, I'm going to try to teach this in a way that's sensitive to you and your situation. For the rest of you, which is the majority, I want you to earnestly know that God cares for you, that I care for you, and that you're a part of this church. You're a part of this family. And this series is really built around the church, exploring and understanding the issues of our culture so that we can enter into the cultural conversation without throwing gasoline on the fires that's already raging. And when it comes to this issue in particular, in my care for you, I need you to know that as we approach this topic today, that oftentimes we find ourselves living on one of two extremes with the gasoline in hand, and neither of them are very helpful. The first extreme is where a majority of us Christians have found ourselves in this culture war, that we've embodied and taken on cultural warriors to put this out. And in the wake of us being cultural warriors, we have left the LGBT community feeling like they don't really matter. We've left them feeling only hate and rejection from us. And I want you to hear today that there are very real issues when it comes to human sexuality, very real issues. We have to be able to think through these, but they cannot eclipse our concern for people. They cannot eclipse our love for people, their families, and their eternity. The second extreme is really a reaction to the culture war and the hate that's been spilled in that arena that this group has become all love, but in doing so has given up thinking about these issues from a faith perspective. This is not any more helpful than the other extreme. The reality is is that we need to be a church family who is deeply compassionate and willing to think biblically about these issues when it comes to human sexuality. That is our challenge in this age and in this day, and that's what this sermon is all about. So here's what it's gonna look like today. My sermon outline is pretty simple, this message is pretty simple. We're gonna talk about sex, we're gonna talk about gender, we're gonna talk about what the Bible has to say about both of those, and then there'll be a few closing remarks at the end. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and get started. Let's start with sex. At the base level of understanding, what determines our sex? Have you ever thought about that before? Like, what makes us male or female? Well, at the base level, our sex has to do with reproduction, it's biological. That we are biologically male or female based on four things, internal sexual organs, external sexual anatomy, uh, genetics, and hormones. That's what makes us either male or female. Just think about the female body for a moment. There are extern- or internal sexual organs and external uh, sexual anatomy that in part is used to reproduce, the same for males. Now, in very small cases, there is something called intersex, and intersex is where there's some disorder in sexual organs or sexual anatomy, but even then, over 99.98% are male or female. That when we look at science, males have higher levels of testosterone, females have higher levels of, of estrogen. Our sex is also developed at a genetic level with either the presence or the absence of a Y chromosome. That we are biologically male or female based on these four things. Internal sexual organs, external sexual anatomy, our genetics, and our hormones. That we are born male or female is simply objective scientific facts. That we are a human race of male and female. There is no third option. There is no in-between. There is no debate. However the way that we view our sexual bodies is largely now culturally formed, socially formed. Which brings us to our understanding or the idea of gender. And this is where it gets a bit sticky. See, in our culture, gender and sex have been separated. Gender and sex have been separated. Now, this hasn't always been the case. Only in the last 10 or 15 years has this happened up until that point. Regularly, gender and sex were seen as synonymous, but not today. This is no longer the case. This is why the issue is so hot right now. Today, when we talk about gender, really what we're talking about is two issues when it comes to gender. We're talking about gender roles, and we're talking about gender identity. Now, when it comes to gender roles, gender roles describe the social and cultural aspects of being a man or a woman, and let's be honest, that a lot of it has to do with the stereotypes in this world and in our culture. I mean, for us, living in the Western world, living in the United States, masculinity is synonymous, uh, synonymous with, with being tough, being aggressive, not liking to talk, not feeling deeply, loving math in the color blue, right? When it comes to females, females are synonymous with being nurturing, liking to talk more, feeling deeply, loving jobs with people in the color pink. These are the roles and they are culturally defined by stereotypes, not absolutes. Let me say that again. Gender roles are primarily defined by cultural stereotypes, not absolutes. So you might be here today, and you might be a woman who likes football. You might be a guy who likes to style hair. The point is that the stereotypes have no bearing. They have nothing to do with whether or not you are male or female. That if you don't fit the typical gender stereotypes, there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's not an issue. But then there's gender identity. And this is where the cultural debate rages. That gender identity is the psychological aspect associated with being male or female. It's the internal self, it's the internal perspective that says I'm male, female, both, or neither. So when there's a tension in your life, Between the biological sex you were born with and the internal perspective, culture says that you have the freedom to choose, that I have the freedom to choose my gender despite what my biological sex may be. This is the heart of the issue, that culturally speaking, that we can disregard our biology or even change it if we want to. This is the move that we're seeing all over in our culture. We see it everywhere in our culture, particularly in the movement of becoming a gender-neutral society. It's the reason that Mr. Potato Head has just become Potato Head, or why words like cockpit and freshman are no longer to be used, or why Mother's Day has now become Birthing Person's Day. And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just letting you know that this is the reason that these things are happening in our culture, that we have to understand what's going on in our culture currently. So back to the question. When it comes to our sexual identity, if someone is experiencing tension between the biological sex they were born with and their internal sense of self, which one wins? Science says biology. Culture says it's your choice. When it comes to the world, it's a split decision, and thankfully for us as believers, we have the Bible. So what does the Bible say about this? Well... If you open your Bible and you look for LGBT community, you won't find it anywhere. You're not going to find it in scriptures. Neither will you find words like lesbian or gay, bi, trans, queer. You're not going to find any of those words in there either. But what you will find is that it does speak to the issues that we face today. And in doing so, it answers the questions, at least most of the questions, that we actually have when it comes to our human sexuality. So starting all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation account where where God is putting creation into order. And here's what he says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. This has been the basis for all of this series. It's this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That from the very beginning of this series, the baseline of this whole series, the foundation of justice to what we have discerned and seen and discovered over these first few weeks is that every single one of us is made in the image of God, which means that every person that you've ever seen and every person that you will ever see and every person that you've ever seen is made in the image of God, that this is a beautiful and wonderful truth that we hold on to. And from this one statement, the Bible affirms that we do have sexual identity, that it's hardwired into us as we have been created male and female. The way that the image bearing was created in us was for God to make us male and female, that God intentionally created us as men and God intentionally created us as women in order that we might bear his image, now listen, this is huge for us. This is huge because what this means is that from original design that your sexuality, your sexual identity is about who you are and how you were created and how you were made to be. That your sex, your body is essential to your image-bearing status in this world. That we bear God's image as male and female. That our biology is on purpose. This is the most fundamental statement that the Bible makes on our human sexuality and our human identity. But it's not the only statement it makes. In fact, it doesn't stop there. It continues to go. And throughout the rest of scriptures, we, we see actually quite a bit of teaching describing what does it look like to honor God in our sexuality through our sexuality. It actually speaks to gender roles and gender identities and, and many of the questions that our society is asking right now. That if we start back in the Old Testament, we have verses like Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse five, which says this, that a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Let's just all admit for a moment that that is some pretty harsh language, is it not? And we ask the question, well, what's the point? I mean, we could make the argument that clothing today is in no way like clothing in the Old Testament. So this verse doesn't really have meaning. It doesn't have purpose. Let's just move on. It's irrelevant. But we believe that every verse has meaning, that every verse has purpose, that every verse has a timeless truth. And so what's the timeless principle of this verse? Well, the timeless principle of this verse is if there's a man who is dressing like a woman in order to, to show himself to the world as a woman, or vice versa, a woman is presenting herself to the world as a man, Paul says that's an issue. That's sin. It's, it's condemned. I'm sorry, Moses says that's an issue. That's sin. It's, it's condemned. And the reason that it's condemned is because it's a violation of God intentionally creating men and women to carry his image into the world, which is embodied in our biological sex. It's this tension that's carried from the Old Testament into the New Testament. As the early church wrestled with, what, with all the issues of, of sexual identity and, and sexual understanding, as, they, as they're grappling with this in the culture, Paul sits down and he writes to Corinth church these words. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. They will not enter into the kingdom. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. He's talking to them about sin, and he gives three very specific examples of sexual sin. The sexual immoral, the adulterer, and those who practice homosexuality. So let's look at these three. First, when it comes to the sexual immoral, oftentimes when we read a word like that, or words like that, we we translate that into sexual deviance. That anybody who's who's going and, and doing and behaving in a way that is sexual deviant, that that is a person who's sexual immoral. But that's not the case here. The Greek word for sexual immoral in this instance is very narrow. It's very specific. And what it's speaking to is male prostitution. And what Paul is saying is that any man, here's what was going on, is that men would dress up as women, they would pose as women in order to sell sex, sell themselves for sex. And Paul says, look, this is an issue. This is sin. Then the second thing that he speaks to is homosexuality. Now, church, please hear me as I say this. That homosexuality has been weaponized, the word has been weaponized by those who profess to be Christians. That we have used this word to fuel crassness and to fuel hate in our world, and there is no room for this in our faith. Zero room for it. In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, spoke pretty clearly to this in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says these words. He says, you treat people with respect always. You honor people always that we as Christians are called, at the very core of our faith, we are called to treat all people with dignity always because they are image bearers of God. And so, don't use this word in general and specifically don't use this word to cause hurt and to bring hate. That when the Bible speaks of same-sex sexual relations, what it is describing is a turning against God's intent for human sexuality that same-sex relations transgresses the sexual distinctions that are meant to reflect the image of God. That's why Paul says that same-sex sexual relations are sin. But those aren't the only two things that he lists here. He also lists a third. He also lists those who are adulterers. So just so that we're all on the same page, biblically speaking, adultery is any time you are lusting after or sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. That's adultery. So if you're single, and you find lust in your heart, or you're sleeping around, you are, biblically speaking, committing adultery. If you're married, and you are, have lust, you're lusting over someone who is not your spouse, or you are sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, that is adultery. And Paul actually addresses this a little bit later on in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 15, he says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! So Paul, again, he's speaking to the church in Corinth, and in the church of Corinth was the huge temple to the sex god Aphrodite. And what happened in and around Corinth was this. Let me just paint the picture for you. That Corinth's prostitutes were actually sex slaves, and they were purchased by wealthy Greek people and they would would purchase these these girls who would then become sex slaves, and they were offered in some twisted way as a religious offering to the temple of Aphrodite's. And so people would come to these shady brothels that were all around the temple of Aphrodite's. They would receive their clients huddled in lumpy straw mattresses in small dark airless stalls with illustrations above each of the stalls of pictures of what the girls' specialties were all about that Paul comes into a culture whose literal God was sex. Sleeping around, not a big deal. So the apostle Paul comes with the gospel of Jesus, and all of a sudden lives are being changed. People are finding salvation, and the church begins. And things are going good, and then a little while later, Paul finds out that some of the wealthy guys of the church are still visiting the temple of Aphrodite. And Paul comes out, and he's like, men, what are we doing? What's going on here? And the men are like, oh, come on, man. It's not like a big deal. Like, I pick my kids up from soccer practice, hit the temple for worship, go to Taco Bell before the big game. Not a big deal. And Paul goes, no, this is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. You can't sleep around like this. That You can't treat women this way. Don't you know? That the way that you treat your body and the intimacy of sex is grounded in you being in the image of God? I mean, we have to get this. Come on, we, today we have to get this, particularly as men, we have to get this. Guys, looking at porn is not oops. Sleeping around is not dating. Lusting in your heart is not a mistake. That every single moment us men do that, we are rejecting the very image of God in our lives. We need to step up and be the men that God is calling us to be. That when it comes to sexual sin, the Bible does not single out same sex sin any more than any other sin. If anything, the Bible speaks more widely and more broadly to heterosexual sin, particularly towards men, and the problems that it's caused in our society and the world at large. See, when it comes to the scripture, what is clear is that we are male and female, and it is rooted in how we are made. It's not primarily how you feel or what you do. It's about who you were created to be. In any violation... Any violation to yourself as, uh, or others in your image-bearing is a grievous offense to our God. It's a wound to our Savior. It's why any sexual sin, any sexual sin that goes against the intentionality of who God created us to be as image-bearers, made as male and female, and the way that we're to interact sexually with one another is condemned that sexual sin goes against the very sacredness in which God created us as image bearers. Now, some of you who maybe are a little bit more biblically astute might be going, well, what about Galatians chapter three? I mean, have you read that one? If you're unfamiliar with it, let me just read it to you. This has become kind of the buzz verse of the sexual revolution. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Then look at this, there is no male or female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Like, what about that, Matt? Like, what, what, what about that? It says it right there. Well, let me just explain this verse in context. This verse is talking about when Jesus came, he established a new economy. The old economy went like this. Jew over the non-Jew. Free over the slave. Rich over the poor. Men over women. And when Jesus came and went to the cross, he leveled the playing field. He brought equality. This has nothing to do with sexual identity and everything to do, everything to do with Jesus making a way for all of us as image bearers to experience the Father's love. So back to the issue at hand. If someone experiences tension in their life from who they've been created to be biologically, their biological sex, and the internal sense of self, Who wins? What wins? Well, the Bible agrees with science, that it's your biology. And so the question then is, what do we do with that? Well, maybe in helping us think through that, let me tell you the true story of a woman named Leslie. From the time that Leslie was very young, even before elementary school, she wanted to live life as a boy. She played like a boy, she felt like a boy, she acted like a boy. At the age of four, she made the declaration that one day she was going to grow up, marry Wonder Woman, and they were going to have superhero kids. She also loved Jesus so much. There was never a day that she didn't know that God didn't love her, that she always believed that God loved her. As she grew, obviously this tension within her from who she felt like on the inside to biologically who she was as a female created tension but she didn't share it with anyone. For years she wrestled alone, no one to talk to, no one to listen, no one to care. Then one day as a teenager, she finally got up the courage to go and to talk to her pastor about what was going on in her life and as she shared her gender dysphoria and as she shared her story with the pastor, she poured out her heart to him and at the very end, as she finished up, he stood up, he walked to the door, he opened it and he said, Leslie, never come back here again. And she didn't. For the next 18 years, she didn't darken the door of a church. The community that she longed for, eventually she found in the LGBTQ community. She fell in love with a woman named Sue. They married. And after a few years, a tragic event happened where Sue ended up engulfed in flames. Leslie did everything that she could to save her. But it wasn't enough. Three days later, she died in the hospital. Grieving, broken, torn up over the loss of the one that she loved. She didn't know where to turn, and so she turned to a church that Sue had one time attended. This church was a conservative church with a conservative pastor. She called the church, she got a hold of the pastor, and she said, my name is Leslie. I'm a lesbian, and my wife has just died a terrible death. I'm wondering if you would be willing to do the funeral. And the pastor said... It would be an honor to serve you that way. You must be grieving right now. This must be a hard time. Trust us to take care of the details. There was no let us explain where we stand, let us tell you what we're for or what we're against, there was none of that. The church just simply surrounded Leslie with the compassion of Jesus and in her it reignited her passion for Jesus. And anybody today who knows Leslie would tell you this, that Leslie, while she still struggles with her dysphoria, That there's not a more beautiful or faithful child of God. That she lives every day fleshing out what it means to follow Jesus. Listen, I wanna be that kind of pastor. I want Crossroads to be that kind of church to the LGBTQ community. That we have to come to grips with the fact that gender dysphoria is real. Gender dysphoria, in case you don't know what it is, it's the tension between your biological sex and that inner self. It is real. We have to come to grips with same-sex attractiveness is real. It's real. It's not just something people make up. It's not a choice that people make. That it's real. And we also have to realize that the Bible condemns neither. It's not a moral issue. The Bible condemns neither. The Bible only condemns the practice when it goes against the bounds of God's intents. Listen, there are real issues around human sexuality, real issues, but we cannot allow it. We cannot allow it to eclipse our love for people, for their families, and for their eternity, that we are committed to grace and truth and walking in the messiness of this life together. So let me say it again. God cares for you. And I can't speak for every church, but I can speak for this church. This church cares for you. And I want you to know that every single person is welcome here. Anyone who's willing to pursue what it looks like to give their life, their whole life to worship of Jesus is welcome here. So in light of all of that as we close this up, there's a challenge for every single one of us and, and I've just put it in the form of a question today. But here it is. Is what does it mean for you today to submit and bring honor to Jesus in your sexuality? What does it mean for you to submit and bring honor to Jesus in your sexuality today? Now, I can't answer that for every single one of us, but every single one of us needs to answer that question. We all need to answer the question because we're not just biological creatures like animals. We were created with a soul, we have a spirit. We are made in the image of God that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that God's grace abounds. There's not one single person here who's, who's disqualified regardless of the sin in your life or what's going on. There's not one single person who's disqualified from the grace of God. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, I wanna invite you into that. And the way that I'm gonna do that is through prayer. But before we get there, what I'm gonna ask every single person to do is just simply close their eyes and to bow their heads, and I'm gonna give you a moment just to reflect, to reflect on this challenge, to reflect on what we talked about today, to reflect on your sexuality. And so close your eyes, I'll give you a moment, then I'll wrap us up in prayer. Father, when it comes to the issues of human sexuality, Lord, it's complex and it's deep. And yet, Lord, we know the wonderful truth that in your image we are made, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that your greatest desire is that we would come and know you the way that you already know us that you're pursuing us even right now that you pursued us by by reaching out to us sending Jesus in human form just like us in the form of a son to come and bring forgiveness of sins to die on a cross so that our sins would be forgiven God you love the world so much that you sent your son Jesus into it And so the question is, is is what do we do in light of that truth? Will we acknowledge that we are sinful and because of our sin separated from you? And the reality for every single one of us is, is really that's a yes or no question. God is looking at every single one of us today and saying, will you give me your life? Will you surrender all to me? And your answer can very simply be yes, I give my whole life, Jesus. I give you my sexuality. I give you all of me in this moment. In this moment. Bottom line, it's simple. God has brought you here for this moment. For you to simply say the words, Jesus, my answer is yes. Forgive me, transform me, be the savior and Lord of my life. Take my whole life. I want to belong to you. Jesus, you are so good to us. You only want what is best. And so Lord, we pray today, offering all of who we are. Lord, for our good and ultimately for your glory. And all of God's people said, amen. Every week we gather together and we celebrate communion. And the reality of communion is is Jesus going to the cross, his body being broken and his blood being spilt for the forgiveness of our sins, not just our sexual sins, but every sin. That at the cross is level playing field. At the cross, grace abounds. At the cross, no one is disqualified. We simply call out to Jesus, you are my savior. And so today we remember by eating the bread Remember, by the pouring of his blood, we're made whole. We're gonna continue in our worship in two ways. First is if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you at any time over the next few minutes. Here in house, you can head towards the back. Online, just hit the prayer button. We're gonna continue in our worship also in singing. So I'm gonna invite everybody here at Thornton to go ahead and stand online, you can find whatever postures uh, you love for worship. But we're going to start by singing an old favorite, one that reminds us of the love that God has for each and every one of us. So, let's worship together.